कर Hello and welcome to Writer Mother Monster. I'm your host, Lara Ehrlich, and our guest tonight is Rache Barnes. Before I introduce Rache, thank you all for tuning in, and you can watch this interview as a video, listen to it as a podcast, and read the transcript on writermothermonster.com. If you enjoy the episode, please consider becoming a Writer Mother Monster patron or patroness on Patreon. For just $3 a month, I'll send you a pin. And uh, new to announce today is a workshop, um, our first Writer Mother Monster workshop, called Prioritizing Your Craft for Writer Moms. It is conveniently scheduled next to Mother's Day. It is Saturday, May 8th. Um, and if you would like to join me in the workshop, please do. Please check it out on writermothermonster.com on the classes tab. Please also chat with us during the interview. Your comments and questions will appear in our broadcast studio and we'll weave them into the conversation. And now I am excited to introduce Rache. Dr. Rache Barnes is a sociocultural anthropologist whose teaching and research specializations are at the intersection of black feminist theories, work and family policy, and African diasporic race, gendered, and classed identity formation. She's the author of the award-winning book, Raising the Race, Black Career Women Redefine Marriage, Motherhood, and Community, and she's written broadly on Black Strategic Mothering, a theoretical framework she developed to explore Black women's interior work, community, and family lives, and how they impact their relationships and health. She is the dean of Pearson College at Yale University and has three kids, a 20-year-old daughter and twin 18-year-old sons. She describes writer motherhood in three words as supporter, creative, industrious. And now please join me in welcoming Rache Barnes. Hello, Laura. Hello. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. I need to make one update to my bio. Please do. I'm not at Yale anymore. (laughs) (laughs) It's a big update. Where are you now, Rache? I'm actually the uh, I'm associate professor and chair of the Department of Gender Studies at Mount Holyoke College. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So when, when you did that happen? When you mentioned when we were chatting that we weren't that we were neighbors, I was thinking, oh yeah, Connecticut, Massachusetts. But not <laughs> before. I didn't realize you were saying we were in the same city. So yes, um, <laughs> sorry about that. <laughs> no, it's fine. Yeah, congratulations on the move. That sounds Thank exciting. You. And Mount Holyoke, that's a beautiful area. So yeah, really pretty. Like I moved um, about a year ago. Okay. Wow. So um, yeah. So tell me. Let's just start. I want to hear about the three words that you chose for <laughs> writer motherhood: supporter, creative, industrious. Tell us about those words. Yeah, so supporter, I feel like that's what's happening, like, all the time, Um, you know, and I think it was fresh on my mind because in the COVID moment and all that's going on in the world right now, I feel like I spend a lot of my time um, offering support to my kids, like, just, you know, being a listening ear or trying to anticipate you know, what kinds of struggles they might be having that I can, I can't fix them because they're almost, you know, they're, they're pretty much adults at this point, but you know, there are little things I can do. They're all home. Um, My daughter is a a junior in college. And so she's been home since the pandemic and, um, and my sons, they're twins and they are still in high school. Um, but their, their high school is in, is in person. So, um, so they, they are getting, it's been in person, like pretty much consistently since maybe November, but before that they were online a lot. Um, so I felt like in a lot of ways I was just kind of paying attention, like just trying to pay attention to how they were, um, being affected by um, the pandemic and by other things that are going on in the world um, and just trying to, you know, just be there, right. Just be supportive in whatever way. So listening, 
Um, you know, we're past the point where I'm making lunches and breakfasts and and sometimes even dinner because um, they're able to, you know, fix things for themselves. But, you know, if I'm, you know, sometimes I'm paying attention, I realize, oh, you know, he's going through a lot right now. Let me make breakfast because he's not going to eat if if I don't make breakfast, um, rushing out to class or whatever. So, uh, you know, things like that. That's what made me think of supporter. Um, creative, I feel like <laughs> you just on the fly, like. What can what do I need to do right now with this situation? You know, it's it really and I think for me, I'm a creative anyway. So it it really kind of, you know, falls in line with that. Right. Like as a mom, I'm just being, um, you know, I guess I guess, again, like I was thinking things I have to do <laughs> and how do I respond to them? Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and same thing with industrious. Like I, I and I think it's also like. Um, I almost put entrepreneurial <laughs> because, you know, also thinking about very practical things like, you know, both of my boys are over six feet tall. So it, it you know, when they were smaller, it was them growing out of clothing very quickly and being very in, industrious <laughs> with how to keep up with the budget, you know, how to, um, you know, do things that were going to keep us within our, you know, financial means. So, and I think I'm also thinking about that right now because they're getting ready for college and, um, you know, we're thinking about what they've gotten some really good packages, but we're, we're also thinking about, okay, how much are we going to have to put in the pot? And it's two of them and my daughter hasn't graduated yet. So there'll be three of them. And <laughs> All of that. All of that is on my mind right now. Yeah, that's a lot. <laughs> <laughs> um, do you find, so with those sort of logistical things that you have to be thinking about, how does that impact the creativity side? Um, you know, when you're thinking about lunches and finances and um, buying new clothes so your child's ankles aren't showing, how do you, <laughs> how do you maintain your creativity? Um, it's hard, actually. I actually went through a period. So I, I used to I used to write poetry and mm-hmm. um and short stories. And I love your book, by the way. Thank you, <laughs> Thank you for sharing it with me. Oh, it's very. I, it's riveting. It's, <laughs> Thank you for reading it. <laughs> I love the, the stories are just so creative and so like also like hitting you at a very like visceral place like yeah I can understand why that person did that (laughs) Um, (laughs) but um yeah I used to I used to do a lot more creative writing and um I think you know I used to say grad school like like pushed it out of me but I think it's been um because you know you have to think differently when you're doing you know social scientific scholarly work but I think as an ethnographer I still get to use some of my creative juices um but yeah I think the creativity in terms of like my writing really um suffered in a lot of ways once I had once I had kids too and um because there just wasn't time and there wasn't um there wasn't time, there wasn't space, there wasn't a way to like keep the creative, you know, I mean, I think so much of creativity happens because you're able to like be alone or be in spaces that are, that are going to inspire you. And, you know, that's not happening when you have, I mean, all three, I had three kids under three, right. When my boys were born and, and, you know, so they're all, they're very close in age. And so there's just, there's just not been, there's not been a lot of time um lately i've been trying to get back to the creative juices um and so i've been doing simple things like coloring mm-hmm. 
I actually have a coloring book. <laughs> so do I. <laughs> it's okay. It um, used to be right here, and I could hold it up, but it's not. Yeah, I think I you, I had mine in my book bag, which is sitting right next to me, but I took it out because I needed to make room for some papers I needed to grade. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so that's what happens to my creativity. Um, I think that's a great metaphor. <laughs> um, but yeah, and I love to dance. So I'm still, you know, as part of my workout regimen that I'm trying to be much more attentive to, I've been, you know, instead of doing lots of things that I don't like to do for movement, I've been doing more dancing. <laughs> um, so I think all of that, like, inspires my creativity I've been trying to go for longer walks and be out in nature and but all of that is because my my kids are older right it's all because I don't have to spend so much time you know with the day-to-day minute-to-minute stuff with them so Mm -hmm. I'm hoping that you know I'll be able to get back into the creative part of my writing you know maybe once they're gone you know, all of yeah. them are um, and I still journal. I've always journaled and I still journal. So, Yeah. Well, you mentioned that the creative, that the creative side of the things that you, that you love to do, the poetry and the short stories maybe have been on hold, but I mean, you've been very, very productive, right? You, <laughs> you're, I mean, you have an amazing book that you've written among many, many other writings. Um, you know, dean of university, and now tell me again the the role at uh, Mount Holyoke. Yeah, so I um, I realized I should probably give a little bit of context too for for how yeah. this happened. I realized that I was um, I like being an administrator. I had been an administrator for almost five years when I left Yale, and um, but I missed I missed writing. I missed the research that inspired my writing, and I wasn't getting as much time to do that as an administrator. Um, and um, I was teaching at Yale, but I wasn't, um, I didn't have, it was just very difficult to carve out time to do the real kind of research and writing that I wanted to be doing. And mm-hmm. I think I might get back to administration later in my career, but right now I still want to be doing research and writing. So um so I had I got the opportunity to um, be in conversation with Mount Holyoke College about a position that they had open um, last year, or I guess it's been maybe a year and a half at this point. And um, it was in gender studies and they were looking for a scholar who was who was focused on black feminisms. Mm-hmm. And that that's me. but tell me a little bit about um so when let's focus on the book for a second um when did you write the book were you writing the book when your kids were younger yeah so talk talk me through the process of the research and writing that went into this (laughs) book with small children yeah that's a great question um I don't think I've I mean, I've definitely journaled about how difficult that was, but I don't think I've actually talked about it. Um, I I had all three of my kids while I was in grad school, and my book is based off of the dissertation research that I did um, for my the research that I did for my dissertation, and um, yeah, they. They were little people. Um, they were, let's see, when I first started collecting interviews, my daughter was, gosh, she must have been like three or four, probably must have been four. And then the boys were coming up on two. Um, when I was collecting most of the interviews Um, and I did, I did the interviews. I did a, it was my concentrated time of interviewing and what we call participant observation, where you're just kind of hanging out with people and seeing what they do. Um, And like, you know, I would like 
go with the moms that I was work was that I was working with from my research to like you know pick up their kids and doctor's appointments and you know soccer games and my kids were were still little you know they were too little to be involved in those kinds of activities so I actually I actually learned a lot from the women that I interviewed about you know balancing out motherhood and work and all the other things that they were doing um but for for me in terms of like negotiating you know doing that research and raising my family um I leaned on my husband a lot um you know he was he was a a trooper (laughs) as far as I'm concerned um with I mean there's one story that we that we still laugh about I had I was a part of this research group that met in the afternoons once a week and it wasn't it wasn't the part of the research where I was actually collecting research, but it was a group of scholars that I was in conversation with um, as I was collecting the interviews and stuff with the women that I was working with. And it was once a week in the evening when my husband at the time was a public school math teacher and he would have, he would get out of school, um, you know, be done with his work day at around four thirty or five. And so I would bring the kids. We had a we had a Volvo and a pickup truck and he would drive the pickup truck to work and I would have the Volvo with the kids. And so those days when I had that meeting, I would put the kids in the Volvo and drive to his school and he would meet me in the parking lot and and he would take the kids and I would and I, you know, he would take them back into school with him or he would just get in the car and go home and I would take the truck and go to my meeting. <laughs> <laughs> and so he would have them for the rest of the evening. Right. Getting them their dinner and getting them ready for their their baths. But even with that, like even when I was collecting the data, like there would be days like that where, you know, I needed to go meet with someone because, you know, that was the time they had to talk with me. And he would watch the kids or my parents would watch the kids. Um, and um, and so it was it was a lot of, you know, just kind of, you know, balancing with them. I never brought them with me, though. Like all, all of the women who I was researching knew that I had kids, but I, I didn't bring them. I didn't want to, you know, break that line of, you know, researcher. Like, you know, I never wanted them to feel like I was their, like, friend or something. Like, it was, you know, it was, um, you know, I wanted to make sure that the, that I didn't cross any lines in terms of, like, making sure I didn't do anything that would, um, interrupt the scholarly process of Mm -hmm. collecting data from people. So, but yeah, it was a blur, a lot of it. Um, and yeah, just, I mean, people used to ask me how I did it all. And I would just say, I don't have a choice. Like, this is just, you know, I mean, I guess I did have a choice. Like I didn't have to pursue my PhD and raise kids at the same time, but, um, it didn't feel like a choice to me. It felt like I needed to be, you know, true to the kinds of work that I wanted to do and, and also true to the kind of mom I wanted to be. Mm-hmm. What kind of mom did you want to be? Um, supportive, creative, industrial. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, but but all jokes aside, I I did. I wanted to be. Um, I mean, we all right want to be good moms. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> what does that mean? I think the way that I was characterizing it then, and I think I still do, has a lot to do with with time. Um, you know, being, being there for them and, you know, not that I need to be there 24 seven, um, cause we definitely did use child caregivers, um, and, and they went to school once they, you know, once they were of age to go to school and after school programs and they were in, you know, rec this and dance that and music this, you know, mm-hmm. we did all that stuff. Um, but yeah, I think it, it had a lot to do with, 
with time, listening, you know, being present, um, showing love. Um, yeah. Talk to me about being present with so many other things going on. How did you, how did you do that? How were you able to be present in the moments you were with your children? I think it's like, like actually doing things with them, right? Like, um, like we made a point of having, um, breakfast together every day even if our afternoon and we decided it would be breakfast because as they were getting older and involved in more activities it was harder to have the same dinner time but we could have the same breakfast time like everybody get up everybody come to the you know come to the table um and eat breakfast together um and so that was always a good time right to be present and available listening, you know, and kind of setting them up for the day ahead. Right. They had this moment in which we were all grounded together as a family that they could then take into their day. Um, At least that's the way I imagined it was happening. I don't know how they would feel about it at this point. (laughs) Like it was a complete annoyance that they had to get up earlier than they would (laughs) have. if they were just having like a bowl of cereal, but, um, you know, we had like full breakfast, like eggs and yeah, it was, (laughs) it was a big to do, um, at the dining room table. Um, so yeah, they having, you know, those are moments that I can remember, um, of being present, um, you know, just really spending time together. We always go on a family vacation, um, we do a lot of things together on the weekends. You know, it's not just, it's not we're all in, the, we're together, but everybody's on a device or, you know, like we still, I mean, even to this day, and they're 18 and 20, we, we have family movie night. We have, you know, they do talent shows. I mean, we all do. It's not just them. Like, we all prepare talent and share it with the whole family, which is a lot of fun. Um, So I guess present is, like, having fun together, like, intentionally, like, being together intentionally. I guess that's what I would say about being present. I love that. Yeah. And finding things that are fun for you and your family to do together. I think there's so much pressure on being present, like dictated by, by kids and what they find fun, which is, that's fine too. But, um, but it's (laughs) probably a little easier to be present if you're finding something that everyone really enjoys doing together. Yeah. 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 Or at least I find that, that if it's something I, I would enjoy anyway, then it's a lot easier to be present than doing something that is, um, a little, less in my in my wheelhouse like playing blocks for example I tend to be like oh god do we have to do that again <laughs> yeah I think that's absolutely right <laughs> yeah um so tell me more about the book so um I I gave the uh title at the beginning but I'll say it again it's raising the race black career women Re- redefine marriage motherhood and community so tell me a little bit about the women that you followed and that you researched and what you learned from them. Yeah, so the the book is um, an, an ethnography, which if folks aren't aware of what that means, it's basically when um, usually anthropologists, but other social scientists, too, just basically um, go out and like spend time with people to kind of understand their everyday lived experience. And you do that with a set of, you know, kind of guiding questions um, about, you know, kind of what you're interested in finding out about this everyday lived experience. So for the for the women that I uh, followed, I love the way you said that, um, the women that I followed around, which is literally what I was doing, <laughs> they were uh they were um, professional women, like career women, educated um, women who had at least a college education, but many of them had advanced degrees. Um, 
And they were in, you know, professions, you know, doctors, lawyers, um, executives, engineers, you know, um, marketing execs, um, you know, finance execs, um, a journalist. Um, so those kinds of positions that would give one a degree of um, financial security and stability. And they were women who were making decisions around whether or not they wanted to continue in a full-time career where they were like very focused on, um, you know, being ambitious in the, um, in the, in the workplace, in their profession, um, or they were continuing in a career, but maybe not on full steam or they were, um, they were choosing to be at home or part time, um, for a while. And what was interesting about this question for me was this wasn't something that, um, historically African American women had, um, had necessarily had the opportunity to think about as a decision, right? As an option. Um, and for these women, it had a lot to do with the fact that they, they um, were professionals, but also their partners were professionals. And mm-hmm. so it allowed them a degree of, of freedom that, you know, historically black women haven't had. Um, and so, so then the negotiation becomes, um, if my husband can't afford for me to be at home, do I stay at home? And, mm-hmm. uh, and a lot of the, a, a lot of the decision making has to do with this history that I've been talking about, right? If, if the history of your experience as a gender, race and gendered person is that you have always worked and even when you have had success at work and made it into a career or a profession, you still worked because that was doing something important for not only your own family, but also for your community, because that opportunity hadn't been available to your community previously. Right. So mm-hmm. what responsibility do you have to a larger framework, right, a larger community of people who may be, you know, quote unquote, counting on you? So, for example, there was one woman that I followed around whose um, family of origin was poor. Uh, many of the women that I worked with, their families of origin were poor or working class. And this is what made it even more difficult because they were, and in this woman's particular experience, um, her parents had had her as teenagers and she was raised by her grandmother and her grandfather in a very small town in the rural South. And the whole community had seen her as a very bright child that was going to go far and do great things. And, um, and so she did, she, she went to college, you know, did well in high school, went to college, um, went on to medical school, um, you know, went into um, her, her career as a physician, got married to an attorney um, and, you know, was living like, everybody back home like dream right like wow look at you you're doing such great things we're so proud of you right and then she starts having her kids and she's like yeah I think you know the combination of trying to hold down this very demanding role in my work and be supportive to my husband who was at the time starting his own business and raising very small children um, was becoming a bit too much. Um, and so she decided because she could, she'd stay home and not just stay home in the sense of I'm just, and she actually said this, I'm not sitting around eating bonbons. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. She was actually helping her husband get the business off the ground. Right. So it wasn't that she had devoted all her time to being a mom. Not that there would be anything wrong with that, but she had decided that for her family, it actually was help, more helpful to everyone, her in terms of her health and stress load and all that stuff, 
her kids because she would be more present and her husband because, you know, she could keep the books. He wouldn't necessarily have to hire more people and things like that. They could build that thing together and make another successful type of thing. But her family at home, like, had no recognition of what that was, right? Her community at home was like, what are you doing? (laughs) Why are you at home, right? Um, And so it was that kind of negotiation that I found many of the women in the study, uh, you know, trying to figure out how to make sense of having these new financial freedoms, um, wanting a, a stability, you know, wanting stability and presence in their households, right? Seeing how this, you know, on-ramp of go, 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 go wasn't really giving them many returns, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, and deciding, you know, it's okay to step back for this moment. Um, And I say for this moment because, you know, for many of the women going back or going back part time or going fully back, but maybe not at full steam um, was something that was happening at different points in their decision making. Right. Or different points in their um, their children's lives, different points in their marriages. Right. There were a lot of things that were at play when they were making these decisions. But what I learned And I'm glad you asked that. What I learned from them was, yes, I learned so many, you know, I probably saved my children so much grief by all the stuff that I learned from these women. (laughs) Like, I could probably write a manual about all the stuff (laughs) that they taught me that I was able to, like, implement because I was watching them go through it just, you know, a few years essentially ahead of me. Um But what I really learned, and this is the part that I hope comes through in the book, is how challenging it is for families in general to figure out how to do all this stuff on their own. Hmm. That's what it came down to, right? These women would have loved to continue their careers, but there was no way to to get, to have it all, right? <laughs> yeah. We've all been trying to have it all, right? That's what they've been telling us. Like, oh, women, you can have it all. Mm-hmm. You have to, you know, just go for it, right? I mean, we have so many people writing books telling us to do all sorts of things. I'm not going to say, because I don't know what all types of copyright things are going on behind the scenes, but... Um, you know, there are people who have been writing different books and, you know, having different campaigns that are about women having it all, right? Being able to combine all these things and do it effortlessly and with no stress and all the sleep and <laughs> looking gorgeous right. while doing it. Um, and it's just, you know, it's, it's only true for a very, 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 very small portion of the population and everybody else who says that they're making it work, I believe is lying. (laughs) I agree with you. (laughs) Thank you for saying that. (laughs) Yes. So what I end up saying at the end of the book and the conclusion is that there are just so many things that our society needs to do if it really cares about children, if it really cares about people, about families, which we keep saying we do. Mm-hmm. Um, there are so many supports that need to be put in place. And what we're seeing instead of supports being put in place is supports being removed or made more challenging to get access to. Um, so yeah, that's what I learned. Yeah, that's a, that's a lot. <laughs> yeah. And we're seeing people here in the comments. Ashley, uh, thanks for listening. Ashley says she agrees too. Uh, yeah, so I think you're hitting a lot of, a lot of people's, um, a lot of people in the gut right now. Um, yeah, I want to go back for a second to something that you said you learned from these women or that you noticed as you were following them, um, <laughs> about how they felt they had to justify their choices to, um, whether it was family back home or communities or the, these, all these voices that have been telling them they could do this, they can do this, we expect you to do this, and then they decide 
that they're going to do something different. Can you talk a little bit about the ramifications of that choice? And um, and if you've had to make choices, whether, you know, maybe different from 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 those women, but um, choices that don't align with what the expectations for you were, how you deal with that? Yeah, that's such a good question, Laura. There was a lot of, um, you know, there was some ambivalence. Um, there was some dissonance. There was some, you know, there was, there was even some like, you know, partial speak, right? Where, you know, a woman is telling me, yeah, I made the decision to come home because I thought it was going to be good for my kids. And, you know, my husband was doing this thing and that thing. And I just thought, well, you know, wouldn't it be great if I could just like focus and at home for a while? And, and then, you know, I, spend more time, right? Follow a little bit longer. And I learned that, nope, this woman got laid off from her job, you know, a month after she had her third and with three small children needing childcare at that moment, it didn't make sense to look for another job. Um, And so she stayed home for, you know, for a couple of years. And then, you know, and then it was the you know, the the explanation, right, the the thing that made sense to go along with that decision, which was which, you know, then became, um, you know, this child needs this kind of activities and this kind of school. And so my being home allows me to be able to get this child what this child needs. And then at one point, her husband was diagnosed with um with an illness and it wasn't, it was a chronic illness. So it wasn't the kind that was going to take him out of work, but it made it, it made it more necessary for him to be more cognizant of like what he was eating and things Mm -hmm. like that. And so she was like, and now that I'm home, I can make sure that we're eating, you know, home cooked meals every day and not, you know, it's not like when I was at work and I was running through the drive through and, you know, so she had this way of like, explaining right um Mm -hmm. went along with the thing that actually wasn't her decision right it was prompted Mm -hmm. by the fact that she got laid off um and there were a couple of women who had those kinds of work related things happen that then led them to it doesn't make sense for me to look for a job right now um Mm -hmm. and so that was that was a huge part of the of the of the ambivalence um or like you know i guess part of what i was saying that doesn't line up as much with the ambivalence that lines up more with the with the kind of double speak um the ambivalence showed up when you know i was talking to one woman who was like yeah i thought i was gonna be you know when i was in college i thought i was gonna be a ceo and you know, I thought I was going to end up, you know, at the top of my, you know, um, profession and my industry. And she was she she made this really funny comment. I don't have it right in front of me, but it was something like. Um, um, and I'm CEO, I'm CEO of this laundry. Right? <laughs> mm-hmm. I'm CEO of making the laundry work. Right. Like it was just kind of like uh, I didn't get anywhere near what I had, you know, expected for myself. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I found women, you know, kind of dealing with that, making jokes about it. Um, but also, you know, recognizing that they weren't doing exactly what they thought they would be doing mm-hmm. um, or even what they, you know, what they decided to do. Right. It wasn't many times it wasn't turning out exactly the way they expected it to. Um, Some of them, you know, became clear about their husband's expectations. Like, what does it mean when you're not bringing in as much money and, you know, how he then sees your role, right? Mm -hmm. So, So when you're both working full time and managing the kids and, you know, managing all of the household stuff together, there's a degree of we're managing all together, right? You're, you know, he's going to have days when he is doing baths and 
doing meals and doing laundry. But when you're, when you've stepped out of that, you know, that partnership configuration, then his expectations change, right? I'm working all day. You're home all day or you're home part time. You should now be doing all the laundry, all the baths, all the meals, right? And so there was that kind of dissonance too. Like the, this is not how it was when we got married. And now, you know, we were partners and now, you know, it's this thing. So, um, there was a lot of, and then on the side of like community expectations and, and family expectations, there was a lot of hurt. They, women were very hurt. Um, because I think they wanted the support, um, from their families, right? And, uh, especially their moms and grandmoms and, you know, and when they weren't getting it, you know, there would be, they would, I would see it. I would, when they would talk to me about it, I would see it even in their, in their body language. There was hurt there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what were the expectations set by your own family and your own mother specifically? Like what kind of, what kind of model did she provide for you of motherhood? Oh. <laughs> My mom and my mom's mom, um, very, very hard worker women, um, and had very, very high expectations of me. Um, and so, yeah, they're, they, (laughs) they would not have been happy. I would have been in the camp of the moms who are not happy with you being at home. Like they would not Mm -hmm. have found that a good use of my talents. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, did you did you ever consider staying home or did you for any period of time throughout your career? I actually did consider it. Um when I I had a I had a couple of different iterations of changing my relationship with work. Um when the kids were really small, I was like, wouldn't it just be easier if I just didn't, you know, if I just did all the stuff that, you know, cause we were at one point we couldn't find childcare. Mm-hmm. I was, you know, when they were really small, I was in grad school, so I wasn't bringing in much money, right? I had yeah. a stipend and I was teaching adjuncts sometimes and, that was supposed to be helping us in some way, but really it was just going to paying for the child care that they were getting when I was teaching. So it, you know, there were a few times when I was like, you know, talking to my husband, wouldn't it be cool if I just stayed home? And he was like, yeah, if you stay home, you're going to be, it was the the thing that I noticed from the other dads. If if you stay home, that all this is going to be you. But <laughs> I'm like, well, I don't want that. <laughs> mm-hmm. that's not how that's not what I want to be doing so yeah um and I also enjoyed my work right there was there was you know some of it was also that you know I wanted to do the work that I was working towards I wanted to mm-hmm. be a researcher I wanted to be a professor um I wanted to be a writer um and teacher so it would have meant for me it would have meant really changing my you know my goals for my life and since I hadn't achieved them yet <laughs> it's not like I was not it's not like the women I was talking to who were in their careers and then made a decision to step back from them or change their relationship with them it was like I hadn't even gotten to it yet so <laughs> I you know I would have been making a very very different decision and then there's another point in which I was like maybe I don't need the PhD maybe I can just not just, but maybe I can be a high school teacher. Mm-hmm. And um, I thought about that for a while. And then, you know, I had tried my hand at at, uh, at uh, substitute teaching, like right after college. And I was pretty clear that that was not my age group. <laughs> like, God bless those <laughs> for whom it is, I think. <laughs> my age group is full on adult. Like, I can't. I'm I'm not good with 
yeah, I need I need people who are going to take full on responsibility for their own learning. Yeah, I'm going to teach you, but I need you to be, you know, responsible for that. So, yeah, so that was that was another moment when I thought about um, when I thought about it. And then. I think since then, I think I think earlier, if I remember correctly, you had asked me something about like if there had been a time when I did have to make some sort of compromise Mm -hmm. with my career expectations and my relationship with work and family. Um, And it was, it was when I was at Yale, it was because um, my, when I took the job at Yale, I'd imagined that my, my husband still teaches high school level, but he teaches at a, at a boarding school. And so we lived on the campus of the boarding school and the kids were approaching the age where they could attend the boarding school. So I was thinking, oh, this is a good time for us to move. So I got my job at Yale and I thought, okay, yeah, now everybody's going to move. And no one moved. (laughs) I was the only one who moved. And so I was commuting. Um, And I was commuting about an hour and a half and I didn't have to do it every day because I did, because I was dean of the college, there was, there's an apartment, like I I had some place to live there, but I needed to be there pretty much full time because I was dean of the college. So it, this, there was a, a real sense of juggling, um, when I had that position. And I think that's in part also what, what made it attractive for me to leave administration. I think it, it was in part that too, um, because there, I didn't have the same level of flexibility I'd had when I was, um, full-time faculty. Um, and being full-time faculty really helped me navigate being a working mom because I could like I worked full days and into nights but I had so much control over my schedule when I wasn't actually in the classroom teaching and so that made it easier to show up for a performance at elementary school or, you know, pick up after school if we were going to do something, you know, special that day or something, you know, it was just allowed um, because I had flexibility over my time. um, I was able to, you know, maneuver things better than I feel like a lot of parents are able to do with like, you know, the traditional eight to six, let's be real. It's not nine to five anymore. Um, and so, uh, yeah, it made it, it, it made it. So being in administration made that more challenging and then being in administration away from everyone yeah, made that even more challenging, especially for me, who is someone who does like to be present as we were talking about earlier. I like to be present. I like to, I like to just be like here, like, you know, especially since we've been in this COVID moment and the kids come in from class and I, you know, because I'm teaching fully online, they come in from class and they, you know, I might be in the kitchen getting a cup of tea or something and they come in and they just kind of hang out with me. And that's cool. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And actually, that leads into a question um, that we have here from Kennedy as Miller. Um, Kennedy asks, and this ties back to um, being present with your kids. She says that you mentioned intentionally carving out spaces to be together and having fun through various things like talent shows or movies. Um, how did you as a family establish that tradition and set up those expectations? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, we... I don't know. We would just kind of say, like, when they were little, 
we would just say, you know, on this night, we're having family night and it might be game night or it might be movie night or, you know, and that and and we so the first thing we established was what day and it's not every week. Like that would be too much. It's <laughs> it's like, you know, <laughs> once or twice a month. Mm-hmm. Um, and then with now that now that we're doing the talent shows, it's like I think it's like once every two or three months. Like it's not entirely regularly but it's but it's regular in the sense that especially for the talent shows it's regular in the sense that you always know that the talent show is is coming and so you're you're always trying to get your talent together which is really funny because then when it's time for the talent show it's like are you ready (laughs) no wait are these are these new talent like do you have to come up with a new talent every time or are these established talents like somebody's always been a great singer and they sing a song every time like how does, how does that work? We're pretty much established talent. Like okay. every now and then somebody does something new out of their wheelhouse. But, and, and trust me, we're not, like, we're not the Jackson Five. Like we're not, <laughs> we're not, we're not super talented individuals. We just, you know, have things that we enjoy doing. I mean, I think all of, all of us in a sense, and I think my husband and I also wanted to make sure that the kids, um, enjoyed music and art and, you know, and dance and stuff like that. So we've always, make sure that those things were a part of their lives. And so, um, and so they've taken, you know, they've taken different instrument lessons and, you know, um, my son, one of my sons has been in the course, um, in the, uh, the acapella group at his school. So, you know, so he likes to sing and, you know, there's one that uses instruments to, um, as his like, downtime so he has taught himself like he when he was little we started him on a viola he played that for a number of years and he wanted to join the band play the trombone for a number of years still plays the trombone then taught himself the guitar and the electric bass so most of the time when we have a talent show he's playing one of those instruments the one that likes to sing is usually singing something um I usually, so, so I, so, so one time I did a dance, I like found a dance on YouTube or something and I taught myself and cause I love to dance. So I was like, that's going to be my talent, but I don't, I don't have, I don't have time to learn a dance every time we have a talent show. So lately I've been reading my writing. Hey, whatever works. I'm like this is my talent. Clearly, I am a writer. So I'm gonna share with you some of what I've been writing. And often it's not anything that they're interested in, but that is my talent. <laughs> now, are you reading them scholarly writing, or are you reading them um, poetry? <laughs> scholarly, writing? I love that. I had this journal article that I had just submitted, and I was like, I'll read like the first part of this. <laughs> That's amazing. I love that. <laughs> I might have to institute that at my house too. And like, <laughs> but yeah, I was saying in terms of like establishing it when they were little, it was really easy because we were just, you know, they were just like, yay, we're going to watch, you know, whatever new Disney movie was out. Um, we also used to go to the movies a lot. Um, so whenever there was a new movie that they were just all like, yay, I can't wait to see blah, blah, blah. And my husband's like that too. Like he loves, he loves going to the movies. Mm-hmm. Um, so that would be like a family outing. And so we just convert that into something that we do at home. And, um, and like I said, we would do like, sometimes it would be a movie, sometimes it would be a game. Um, and we've tried different things. Like it's not that we, you know, one day decided we're always going to have this and we had it forever and ever. Um, like we had at the beginning of the pandemic, we tried, you know, because we couldn't go to church. We tried Sunday, come up with your own inspirational thing that you want to share with everyone. And, you know, that went for like a month. And then everybody was like, okay, we're over this. (laughs) (laughs) I love them. Being flexible too. Like, you know, letting them say, letting the kids say, I don't, I don't want to do this, but we don't let them cop out of like, a family time. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, and this was one thing going back to the the question. 
Um, one thing that we did try that that was really helpful was taking turns picking the movie. Mm-hmm. So you didn't have to have a consensus. I mean, everybody, if it was something nobody wanted to see, like people could be like, no, we don't want to see that. But, <laughs> but most of the time, you know, everyone picked a movie that everyone or most of us would be interested in seeing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I have to say it's nice now that my daughter's she's almost five. And so she can watch like not all the movies that I would want to watch, you know, but she can watch movies that are actually really enjoyable for grownups, too. Unlike yeah. um, when they're, you know, like one or two and you have to watch just I don't even remember what Sesame Street, which is lovely, but it's not the same sort of level of investment for grownups. So, yeah. Uh, so yeah, being able to watch movies together and engage and talk about the plot and the characters, it's really nice. It's a nice well, the, perk of kids growing up. The running joke in our family um, is that my husband hasn't seen that many of the movies because he falls asleep. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Well, so they're, they're always new for him then, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So um, we only have a few minutes left, and I feel like this is a big topic for just a few minutes, but I want to ask you about it anyway. Um, tell me about Black Strategic Mothering. Uh, yeah. Tell me first the 30-second version, and then we'll <laughs> tease it out. So black strategic mothering is basically a term that I came up with that actually just um, identifies something that's already been happening. And that is that black women over time, especially in the United States, have had to come up with ways to... um, basically strategize for the survival and I mean real time survival mm-hmm. of their children, their families and their communities. And so when I talk about it as a strategy, I'm saying that um that black women are recognizing that their different strategies are necessary at different times. Mm-hmm. Um and they can change according to the historical period and they can also change according to the life course, right? So you can be a woman who used one strategy when your child was small and then another strategy entirely when your child is an adult. And it's not the simple whole, you know, way that we think about how, of course, you change as a mother as your child goes through different stages, but we're talking about survival. <laughs> um, and so for for Black women, and I say for Black women in particular, because of our relationship with this country, historically, um, it has meant that the lives that we could be in real fear for our lives and for the lives of our children and the lives of our partners um, at different times. So I remember, I can just give you an example from my life. I remember when it occurred to me as a mother that my sons were no longer being viewed as cute and adorable little boys. They had, they had crossed some invisible line where they're not seen as cute little boys anymore and they're seen as potentially scary men, mm-hmm. even though they're still cute little boys. Um, and so, yeah, it's that kind of, and so how do you parent differently when you, when you have that realization? Um, and then when they start driving, there's another point in which you are strategizing differently. Up to that point, you haven't had, you haven't really needed to talk about that realization that you had when they turned, you know, somewhere around 12 or 13. Now that they're 
16, 17, 18, and they're driving and you're not there, then there's a new conversation that it's not new for you because you've been even thinking on it since they were 13, but now it's new for them. And how do you have that conversation with them? How do you parent them to see them walk out the door and know fear that something could go wrong while they're out there? So, yeah. and I think it's very important and I'm going to make sure I do this to distinguish between the fear of a mother when their child walks out the door. Right. And the fear, as you're saying, this is black strategic mothering. This is specific to the mother of children who are black. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Can you say a little bit more about the survival aspect? I think this is imp- we can dedicate more than 30 seconds to this. And I wish that we talked about it a little <laughs> because it, it's a vital importance. Um, yeah. So can you talk a little bit more about the survival aspect of of that strategy that changes? Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, I mean, for the example that I just gave, right, the survival is like real, real time. How do you make sure that your kid comes back home? Mm -hmm. Um, What do you need to teach them so that they survive the encounter with whoever? Right. The encounter could be with and, you know, we know from the news, like I'm not making up things that couldn't actually happen. The survival could be you survived a person seeing you having a good time with your friends and deciding that your music is too loud. Um, How do you make sure your child is able to come back from that encounter Mm -hmm. or it's being stopped by the police? How do you make sure your child is able to survive that encounter? Mm -hmm. Um, Or it's, you know, uh, a run-in with another young person. How do you make sure your child survives that encounter? Um, and the truth of it is you can't make sure, right? So the strategies are what have we learned over time from this toolkit, right, that is basically passed down through the collective memory of Black mothers, um, that we try to share with our children mm-hmm. who think the world has changed <laughs> <laughs> and they don't need to be concerned about it anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you, you know that you can't, you know, in your knower that you can't keep it from happening. Mm-hmm. And so even that is a strategy, right? Yeah. How do you how do you <laughs> how do you do it? Right? How do you how do you do it knowing there's nothing you can do? Um so yeah. Take it for a second back to writing and why it's important to to write about this and to put it out there. I think um if we could how do I want to articulate this? I think it was it's so important what you said. There's a commun there's a, a wellspring of knowledge um behind these strategies so are you how are you continuing um to further them through writing them down i try um it's hard it's hard sometimes um i'm actually supposed to have written two different pieces for two different um you know basically public facing news outlets um about, you know, all that's been happening over the last year, specific to COVID and specific mm-hmm. to what happened to George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and recognizing that even George Floyd and Breonna Taylor are just two names among many, many that have not been named um, and have not had justice in any form. And um, and I haven't been able to finish them. Um but I, but I, I keep trying because it needs to happen. 
I mean, I appreciate you for asking me, right, for 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 having me in interview format, um, have these have this conversation, have these conversations. But I am a writer and I try to write them and and it's hard. Um, and I think it's funny because I was just thinking earlier, like one of them, I just need to say, I'm not going to be able to get this done because I keep trying to get it done and I keep not being able to. Um, I just can't, I don't know if I'm still too close to everything, like because we're still in the thick of things and, and things are, you know, I feel like things are unfolding, new things are unfolding every day. And, um, you know, one thing I didn't mention was my, both of my parents had, had COVID last summer and they're, they're fine now. They're better. They're, they, they're not long haulers. They're doing great. Um, but they, they, they are also getting older and it's, you know, and it's becoming clearer to me that, that they're getting older and, um, and we're still in this very difficult moment and I still have, children who are going off to college and and we're still in this very difficult moment and and so it's just I think I'm still I think I am personally struggling to write out all that I want to be able to say and you know part of it is because I'm a creative but I'm also a scholar so Mm -hmm. part of me is like I need more information. I can't, you know, I can't put this out yet. I need to interview some more people. I need to do some more reading. I need to, you know, that part of me is like, you know, you got to have this right before you put it out. Um, But there's the creative in me and the one that is committed to telling the stories of black women, especially black women who haven't been heard not that they haven't been saying anything, but that they haven't been heard. Um, and, and using, using my platform to say, here's what you need to know about what these experiences are in real time from these people that you don't usually listen to. And, and so that's in the other year. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to do that. I'm going to make a decision. I'm either going to get it done or say I can't do it. And either one I think is okay. Right. Yeah. I'm I'm learning to give myself more grace. Yeah. I think that's a good lesson for everyone especially for mothers and for mom, mother writers. So that's a good piece of advice to, to end on. Although I wish we could keep talking all night. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much for joining us, Roche. This has been such a pleasure. Um, Stick around for a second after the fact so I can say goodbye, but um, yeah, but thank you again. Thank you. Thank you to the audience that was here and for those who might see it later. Appreciate you. (laughs) and thank you all for joining us um again you can watch the interview again listen to it as a podcast read the transcript all on writermothermonster.com and if you'd like to come join me and strategize how to prioritize our craft make space for writing um and just have a little time to write and talk, please um, sign up for our first Writer Mother Monster workshop. And you can find that information on the website under the classes tab. So thank you all. See you next week and have a great evening. Bye. <laughs>